Happy New Year! Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Canadian maritime city of Halifax, capital of the Atlantic province of Nova Scotia, suffered a catastrophic event that nearly destroyed it when two ships collided in the harbor, starting off a chain of events that would create the largest explosion before the atomic bomb. I was honored to lend my voice to help recall how this catastrophe is commemorated each year as part of the Backtracker History Show, hosted by Alice Hill. I put a request out asking for any local Christmas traditions that I might not have heard of. And this one came in from Mark Vinat of the History of North America podcast. This is what he had to say. Hi, this is Mark Vinat from the History of North America podcast, where I explore the wonderful and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography at markvinat.com. There is an unusual festive tradition in Canada. Each year, we Canadians send the biggest, best fir tree grown in Nova Scotia to Boston, Massachusetts because of the assistance given during the World War I disaster known as the 1917 Halifax Explosion. This tradition has carried on for many years. Placed in the Common, the oldest city park in the United States, the Boston Christmas tree is lit throughout the holiday season. What happened on the 1st of January over the years? In 1818, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, is published anonymously by the small London publishing house of Lackington, Hughes, Harding, Mayer and Jones. Mary created the story on a rainy afternoon in 1816 in Geneva when she was 18 years old. She was staying with her husband, the poet Percy Shelley, their friend Lord Byron, and Lord Byron's physician, John Pellidori. During their trip, this group found themselves trapped indoors by the weather and so passed the time by telling and writing ghost stories. The ideas for both Frankenstein and Polidori's The Vampire, which was published in 1819, were both born that day. Now we've reached January 1st, 1945, when, during World War II, the German Luftwaffe launches Operation Bodenplate, or Baseplate, an attempt by the Luftwaffe to cripple Allied air forces in the Low Countries of Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. The goal of Bodenplatte was to gain air superiority during the stagnant stage of the Battle of the Bulge so that the German army and Waffen-SS forces could resume their advance. The aim was to regain dominance of the air by destroying as many Allied aircraft as possible on the ground along with stores, fuel supplies and the airfield infrastructure to get the planes off the ground. Every Luftwaffe's fighter and fighter-bomber unit along the Western Front was involved. As well as night fighter units which were redeployed for the operation, 
and with Junker GU88 acting as Pathfinders. Secrecy was so tight that not all German ground forces had been informed of the operation, and some Luftwaffe formations suffered casualties from their own flak. British intelligence, Ultra, had tracked the movement and build-up of the Luftwaffe forces, so they knew something was up, but they didn't realise the operation was imminent, and so the element of surprise was achieved. During 1944, German military production actually reached its highest level of the entire war, with nearly 25,000 fighter aircraft produced. This operation was planned for the 16th of December 1944, but was delayed repeatedly due to bad weather until New Year's Day, the first day that happened to be suitable. The operation achieved some surprise and tactical success, but was ultimately a failure. A great many Allied aircraft were destroyed on the ground, but replaced within a week. Allied aircrew casualties were quite small, since the majority of the losses were grounded aircraft. The Germans, however, lost many pilots who could not be readily replaced. When Operation Bodenplatt was initiated, General Lieutenant Adolf Galland was head of the German fighter force. Suitably unhappy, he had this to say following the operation. The Luftwaffe received its death blow at the Ardennes Offensive. In unfamiliar conditions and with insufficient training and combat experience, our numerical strength had no effect. It was decimated while in transfer on the ground and in large air battles, especially during Christmas, and was finally destroyed. Operation Bodenplatte was the conclusion of the tragic chapter. In the early morning of January 1st, 1945, every aircraft took off. They bent into a large-scale, well-prepared, low-level attack on Allied airfields in the north of France, Belgium and Holland. With this action, the enemy's air force was to be paralysed in one stroke. In good weather, this large-scale action should have been made correspondingly earlier. The briefing order demanded the very greatest effort from all units. According to records, about 400 Allied airplanes were destroyed, but the enemy was able to replace material losses quickly. In this forced action, we sacrificed our last substance. Because of terrific defensive anti-aircraft fire from the at- attacked airfields, from flying through the barrages attempted for the V-1 bombs, and from enemy fighters, and because of fuel shortage, we had a loss of nearly 300 fighter pilots, including 59 leaders. Only by radically dissolving some units was it possible to retain the remainder. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. And now we move on to 1953, when Hank Williams, the American singer-songwriter and guitarist, passed away. As a boy, Williams was the musical protégé of Rufus Payne, an African-American street performer who went by the name of T-Tot and busked on the streets of Georgiana and Greenville in Alabama. Williams began playing the guitar at the age of eight, his first chords probably being taught to him by Payne. He made his radio debut at the age of 13, formed his first band, Hank Williams and his Drifting Cowboys, at the age of 14, and early on began wearing his trademark cowboy hats and western clothing. The last years of his life were suffused in increasing sadness and substance abuse. He died of a heart attack in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in the backseat of a car, probably in West Virginia, while being driven from Knoxville, Tennessee, to a concert in Canton, Ohio. And lastly, we go to 1972, when Maurice Chevalier, the French actor and singer, passed away. Best known for his signature songs, including Mimi and Thank Heavens for Little Girls, and for his films including The Love Parade, The Big Pond, The Smiling Lieutenant, One Hour With You, and Love Me Tonight. His trademark attire was a boater hat and tuxedo. When he was young, he was determined to be an acrobat, and Maurice left school aged 10, but was convinced to abandon this after a severe injury. He tried a number of other jobs, a carpenter's apprentice, an electrician, a printer, and even a doll painter. In the end, he was able to hold down the job at a mattress factory and became interested in performing. While daydreaming, his fingers were crushed in a machine and he was forced to stop working there. While covering in 1900s, he offered his services as a performer to the sceptical owner of a nearby cafe. Chevalier performed his first song there, and the audience thought it was hilarious because he sang three octaves too high. Discouraged, Morris returned home where his mother and brother Paul encouraged him to continue practicing. He continued singing unpaid at the cafe until a member of the theatre saw him and suggested he try for a local musical. Chevalier got the part and began to make a name as a mimic and a singer. When World War I broke out, Chevalier was in the middle of his national service, already in the front line, where he was wounded by shrapnel in the back in the first weeks of combat and was taken as a prisoner of war in Germany for two years, where he learned English. By the time of World War II, Chevalier was a star and continued to tour in the unoccupied areas of France, but performed twice in Paris and once for French prisoners in a German camp in exchange for the release of several prisoners of war. He was declared a collaborationist, but his name was soon cleared, and he resumed his career in France. He had a very successful career in America, starring in films with the likes of Audrey Hepburn and Frank Sinatra, but decided to retire in 1967, although he was convinced to sing the title song of the Disney film The Aristocats, which ended up being his final contribution to the film industry. Chevalier passed away in Paris's Necker Hospital from cardiac arrest following kidney surgery. He was 83 years old. Well, I'm afraid that's it, but I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, I have to thank those people who really brought it all to life. And we have Sam Roberts and Molly Jeffries, as well as Steve Shepard, Tony Allen and Mark Vinette accomplished writer and host of the History of North America podcast. 
Thank you, one and all. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.